it's difficult to know how to greet one another on Good Friday. You can't say happy Good Friday. Because in all seriousness, it's not happy. It's a tragedy. And it's also good in the deepest sense of the word. And so there is this mix on Good Friday of heaviness and rejoicing. And I think that's been reflected thus far in the service. And what I want to do is continue to step into that heaviness and rejoicing together as we look at one word. I believe that sometimes one word can change our lives. Even as I look back on the course of my life thus far, I can think of those one word moments that stand out to me. Like years ago, when I got down on one knee and I asked Lisa to marry me and she said one word, yes. <laughs> that word changed my life. Or like when she came to me several years later and she said, Carrie, I'm, one word, pregnant. And that changed everything. Maybe it's not necessarily the one word that changed everything, but all that it represented, all the meaning behind it. And I realize that in those examples, those are both examples of rejoicing, how one word can bring about incredible rejoicing. And yet I also realize that one word can bring about incredible heaviness. I know that from my life, and I know that from your life. Tonight I want to look at a word that combines both heaviness and rejoicing all at the same time. Tonight's sermon is really a reflection on this one word, and it's the word our. O-U-R, our. And I firmly believe that if we let that word sink in, it can change our lives that God can use it to change our lives. But we have to unpack it. So where do we see it in Scripture? It's all over the place. But tonight I want to focus in on its specific usage as relates to Good Friday. Good Friday, that day that we remember Jesus' death. Did you know that his death was predicted? It was predicted all throughout the Old Testament, which was the first part of the Bible written before Jesus came. It's all over the Old Testament. But probably the most famous prediction of Jesus' death is Isaiah 53. The passage that was read for us three times tonight, three different sections. Isaiah 53 stands out because it so clearly describes the events of Good Friday that Jesus fulfilled. It happened 700 years before Jesus came. And it was already read for us, so I want to focus in on one verse. Isaiah 53 Five says this. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. There's a theme there. It's the repetition of the word our. Fast forward 750 years after Isaiah 53 was written, and Peter, Jesus' lead disciple, is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write a letter to several churches. And he's reflecting back on Good Friday. And he's also reflecting back on Isaiah 53. He's reflecting on both of these, and at the same time, he puts them together, and he summarizes them with this statement. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Just the first half. This is what he says. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's how he summarizes Good Friday. That's how he summarizes Isaiah 53. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It doesn't say he himself bore sins. That would be absolutely true. It doesn't say he himself bore the people's sins. That would be absolutely true. It says he himself bore our sins. And all of a sudden... It reminds us that Good Friday is profoundly personal. And I believe that that has the power to change our lives. So let's unpack it a bit. In order to unpack this word, our, we have to look at its context. We have to look at the words around it. So let's do that piece by piece, looking at this phrase, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So first, he himself. Who is he? Clearly, it's Jesus. But who is this Jesus who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree? Who is this Jesus? Let's look at that day, that day that this verse is describing, Good Friday, to give us an idea. As Pastor Eric mentioned, it started in the dark hours of the morning, and we find Jesus with his face on the ground in utter agony, crying out, Father, God, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but yours be done. Can you see him? Can you see him perfectly surrendering to God the Father's will in that moment when everything inside him is screaming and he's sweating drops like blood? He gets up and he finds his disciples sleeping. Can you see him? Utterly let down in this hour of need. And then off in the distance, they hear footsteps, a crowd coming towards them in the middle of the night, coming to their private location on the Mount of Olives. And all of a sudden, there's torches lighting up the path on the way there. One of Jesus' closest friends, Judas, 
approaches and gives him a kiss. It's normally the sign of friendship, but here it's the sign of absolute betrayal. He's marking Jesus for this crowd in the dark. Come get this man. And so this mob with clubs and swords comes in to get Jesus. Some of Jesus' disciples pull out their swords like it's time to fight. And Jesus says no. He's willing. Can you see him? He's willing to go forward. And at that moment, his disciples scatter. He swept up, captured like a criminal in the middle of the night, and carried away. Can you see him? The next we know, he's at the high priest's home. It's very, very early in the morning. And everybody is trying to find something they can accuse him of because they want to kill him. But they can't find anything against him because he was innocent. There's nothing that they can find when they look at his life. The trial becomes like a circus when all of a sudden the high priest looks at Jesus and says, Tell us, are you the Son of God, the Messiah? And Jesus quotes back scripture, referring to himself saying, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God coming on the clouds. In other words, he's calling himself the Son of At once, everybody understood what he was saying. So in this dramatic gesture, the high priest rips his clothes in utter grief, saying, this is blasphemy. In other words, the, the high priest understood. Clearly, Jesus is calling himself the Son of God. That's why it's blasphemy. And did you know it wasn't the first time he was accused of blasphemy? Multiple times throughout Jesus' life, crowds begin to form to stone him, accusing him of blasphemy, making himself out to be the Son of God. This was Jesus' understanding of himself. In fact, whenever anybody called him the Son of God, he wouldn't correct them. He would affirm them. This is Jesus' understanding of himself, and this is what they understood about him. So that's why they accused him and sent him away to Pilate. Pilate doesn't care he called himself the son of God. That doesn't impact Rome in his mind. Pilate, for Pilate, when Pilate looks at his life, he calls him innocent. So then Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod finds him innocent. Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate says to the crowd three times, this man is innocent. And yet, he hears the shouts, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. It's getting so loud that it's on the verge of a riot. And Pilate knows that a riot would spell trouble for his career. So to quiet the crowd, he says probably the Latin expression, Ibis in crucem, on the cross you go. He sent an innocent man 
who he knew to be innocent to the cross. Can you see him? Jesus going through with it. Totally dedicated to the Father's will. We watch as the soldiers beat him, as they slap him, as they spit on him, as they put a crown of thorns on his head. Can you see him? They take him away to be scourged, which is a whip with those jagged metal ends. And they scourge him, opening his back, making it raw. Can you, can you see him? And he's not resisting. He staggers up that road to Golgotha. And he's so beaten and torn and, and worn that he can't even carry the cross. They have to pull Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross up there. They nail him to the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Can you see him up there? He's ministering to someone who's guilty of murder next to him, telling him the hope of salvation while he's on the cross. He's pouring out with compassion. And in fact, while he's on the cross, he looks at his mom and he finds his friend and he says, will you take care of my mom? So filled with compassion, never for a moment caught up in himself in his own pain. Can you see him? The whole sky gets black. The sun is darkened. He cries out with a loud voice and he gives up his spirit. And at that moment, the veil in the temple that represented the separation between God and humanity is torn open, representing that the way to God is open. And then there's a great earthquake and the dead are raised as a foretaste of what is to come when death is defeated. And the the Roman guard who was in charge that day, at that moment, says, surely this was the Son of God. You know, in another description of Jesus' death, he says, surely this man was innocent. So what did he say? He probably communicated both. And that would be a very apt description of what we see that day. He was innocent. He was perfect. He completely bowed to the Father's will, never sinning, never swaying. And he was and is the Son of God. So who is he himself in this verse? Who is he himself who who did these actions? He's the perfect Son of God. That's the he himself that this is describing. So what did he do? What actions did he perform? It says in 1 Peter 2.24, it goes on, it says he, he bore our sins. To bear something is sacrificial language. All throughout the Old Testament, there was various sacrifices and often what would happen when someone was making a sacrifice is that they would place their hand 
on the head of the animal and by doing so transfer their sin to the animal. And at that moment, it was understood that the animal was bearing their sin. And then it would be sacrificed as a way of communicating, this animal is taking my place. So that's what sin bearing is. It's when, it's when your sin is transferred to something else, and that something else takes your place and what the sin deserves. And yet, what we find out from Scripture is that the animals were never enough. They could never truly take our place. And so that's where who he is and what he did in this verse comes together. I once heard it, I once heard it illustrated like this, and it always stuck with me. It's helpful, but I'll personalize it. Imagine that I committed a crime, and the penalty was to be forever put in prison. And so they lock me away, n- n- never, never for me to come out. And all of a sudden, a friend hears that this has happened to me. And for some reason, he's moved to try to do something. So he comes and finds me in the prison, and it's one of those small-town prisons where only the warden is in charge. And so he comes to the warden, and he says, I want to serve Carrie's sentence. I want to bear his penalty. Take his record and transfer it to my own. I will suffer as if I am the very one who committed it, my life in place of his life. And so the warden says, okay. Sends his intern to go get the file. They come back, they're doing all the paperwork, and lo and behold, they discover my friend has committed the exact same crime. He can't take my place. He's just as guilty. So actually, they throw, me, they throw him in the prison with me. So then, my extended family finds out that this is going on. You could assume that Lisa would try, but we would make an arrangement for her to take care of the kids, so it's my extended family. Finds out my mom, my dad, my cousins, my uncles, everyone says, whoa, what's going on here? Maybe we can do something about it. So they come to this ward, and they all show up at the same time, and they say, we want to serve their sentence. Take what's on their record and spread it out over our record. We will suffer as if we were the very ones who did this crime, our lives in place of their lives. And the warden says, okay, we'll try to arrange it. The intern gets the files. They're starting to do the paperwork. And lo and behold, my entire extended family has committed this same crime. And so they throw them all in the same prison. So there we are together. And then the brook hears about it. They're like, wait, Carrie's family, but we're family. And so everybody connected to the brook comes together and shows up at this prison, and they say, okay, together, all together, will you take the records of this family and put it on our church family, spread it out. We will serve the sentence in their place. We will bear the penalty as if we were the very ones who committed it, our lives in place of their lives So the intern goes, they get all the files, and lo and behold, everybody in the brook has committed the exact same crime. And so we are all put in that prison cell. And now it's getting crammed. 
Here's the problem. If we are all guilty, then who can take our place? If we've all committed the crime, then who could have the record transferred to their record? And if the crime is sin, and we've all committed sin, then who can take our place? Who can set us free? And then Jesus comes along. And he says, take all of their records and put it on mine. Let me be treated as if I am the one who did their crime. I will bear the penalty for all of them as if I'm the very one who committed it. My life in place of their life. And lo and behold, Jesus is the only one who never sinned. Therefore, Jesus is the only one who can set us free. It had to be him. It had to be him. There is no other. He's the perfect son of God who bore our sins in his body. In his body. So that we wouldn't have to experience it in our bodies. He took our place. He stood in our place on the tree, which means at the cross. At the cross, he stood in our place. He substituted himself. That reminds me of something else. I read about uh, the memoirs of Ernest Gordon, and he was a prisoner in in World War II, a, a prisoner of war at a concentration camp. And he writes about one day there was this incident where one of the, sh- the one of the shovels ended up missing. The guard found that a shovel was missing. So he calls together the prisoners who had been using the shovels that day, and he says, until the person who took the shovel fesses up, I will execute all of you one by one. And so he raises his gun to start executing, and one of the prisoners steps forward and says, it was me. And they instantly executed him. And later that night, they recounted the shovels and found out there had been a mistake. There was never one missing. It was just simply that that man had died so that the others could live. He substituted himself. Jesus substituted himself. Only it wasn't for his friends. Can you believe it? It was for his enemies. Those other prisoners were innocent of taking uh, the shovel. Jesus died for people who were guilty. He died for the very ones who had rejected him. That's what it means when it says he bore our sins. Sins are all the ways that we rejected him. He bore the ways that we rejected him, and he still substituted himself. That's what he did. He himself, the perfect son of God, bore our sins as a sacrifice, and he substituted us himself. 
So where do we fit in? Is this just a fact about Jesus that happened two millennia ago? Like, it would be possible to say, wow, the perfect son of God sacrificed his life to set the guilty free. Isn't that a noble act? Isn't that impressive? And then go on with our lives like, okay, then where's the Reese's peanut butter eggs? In seriousness, I lived a good portion of my life believing in the facts of what Jesus did. Being able to acknowledge them and yet it hadn't gotten to my heart. And so then we come across this little word, our, and it reminds us that I can't look back on Good Friday as an event that had nothing to do with me. When I hear the word our, I'm reminded that my sin was in the picture that day. My sin is part of what made the cross necessary. I can't only point my finger at Pilate, at the Jewish leaders, at the Roman soldiers, when, when I am part of the reason that Good Friday happened. This word, our, slows us down and allows for this reality to sink in. It shows us the heaviness of our sin and what it required. You know, one of the most famous theologians of the 20th century who wrote one of the most influential books on the cross in the 20th century, John Stott, he said this, he said a very interesting statement. He said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. This little word, our, slows us down and reminds us the, the heavy reality that the cross was done by us. It reminds me of um, a poetic way of putting this. Um, written in an old hymn, it goes like this. "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood, I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Son of God, I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one, and in that cry of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the crowd I see, mocking the sufferers groan, yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. This little word, our, slows us down and makes Good Friday profoundly personal. All of a sudden, we see ourselves in it. But hold on. There's another side of the coin then, though. But wait. Because, 
Because if I had a part to play in the heaviness of the cross, then I have a part to play in the rejoicing of the cross. If I was part of the reason that Good Friday happened, then I can be part of the results of what happened at Good Friday. It means that when I place my faith in Jesus, I can know that my sin has been fully paid for. And they never have to be paid for again. And if that's new, if that's you, it means that you can be utterly free. It means that you can be utterly forgiven. It means that the very thing that stood between you and God has been utterly removed the moment you place your faith in Jesus. And the only thing that remains is to embrace what he has already done for us by faith. The moment we believe, we can know that Jesus not only paid for sins, period, he paid for our sins. Good Friday is that level of personal. The word our reminds me that I took part in the cross. That was my sin being paid for on Good Friday. And that's heavy because it's my sin. And yet it's also rejoicing because it's paid for. One word can change your life. Our. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It's when, he realized, it's when you realize that the cross involves you, your sin and your salvation. It's when you realize that Good Friday is more than an event that happened a long time ago, but that it has everything to do with your life today. It's that level of personal. And so here at the end, if you've never embraced it to that level of personal, I want to invite you to do so. To be able to look to Good Friday 2021 as a day that was truly good. It was full of heaviness in recognizing the weight of our sin, and yet it was full of rejoicing in recognizing that the moment we believe, we can know that it has and always will be fully paid for. And so what that looks like is turning to God and believing that Jesus did this. He actually did this for you. Confessing that you need it, that your sin required it, and beginning to walk with God. Beginning a life with Him, and He will meet you in that. And if you've already been walking that life, I want to invite you to embrace this with fresh appreciation. That as believers, we can know that my sin and your sin, our sins, have been placed on the one who bore them in his body on the tree. They are fully paid for. And if I can think of anything that is good, that is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank you that you sent Jesus, the perfect son of God who gave his life that when we believe, we can have life. That we can know that we are forgiven 
and we are free the moment we place our faith in him. I pray that you would stir that up in our hearts, that you would perhaps stir that up for the very fresh, the very first time, or that you would stir that up with fresh appreciation. So Lord, fill us with wonder. We thank you in Jesus' name.